Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in a popular film franchise, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are continuing our miniseries X23 about Fox's X-Men films. We will fully spoil today's film's but we will try at all costs not to spoil any future entries in the series. Today we are talking about X-Men First Class. Emmett, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. I love this movie. <laughs> You've already spoiled <laughs> already spoiled your feelings on it. That's good. Uh, I'm doing good as well because we are today honored to have a special guest. She's an actor, director, and writer, perhaps best known to our audience for her role as Christine Killer Keller in the 2020 Zoom revival of Eve Ensler's 1993 classic, All My Daughters. Please welcome <laughs> Anna DeMauro. Hello. 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 <laughs> Thank you for being wow, here. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. It's been a lovely evening. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first experience with X-Men? Ooh. The films, the characters, anything. Just your first memories of X-Men. I guess my first... There's like two things that come to mind. First was when I was um, first moved to North Carolina, we became good friends with my uh, our actual property manager and kind of got inducted into their family. And so... When he first started giving me comic books, it was like the X-Men. So I read all through their like whole origin and I could not like remember any of it for the life of me. But I remember thinking like, this is the coolest story of like these mutants that are like, it's just a step ahead of us. And I loved that about it. And I guess the other one was like Saturday morning cartoons. There was always this like teenage X-Men on. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. I just remember the like the kid versions of them and they're like kid problems. Like, oh, I can't go to prom because like my mutant powers you know like stuff like that yeah i watched x-men evolution is the one i remember watching which was like kind of cg mm -hmm, animated mm -hmm. but they were like they were all young and they were like very like slender like tall and skinny mm -hmm. and all very angsty that's the one i remember most i think i remember i think i know what you're talking about do you know what the what your first memory of this movie is or the first time you watched it i think i saw this in the theater I, I think the thing I if you if we had talked about this before we rewatched it, I would have remembered that scene right close to the end where the crisis really like gets mm, heated. Mm -hmm. I remember that and like the stop and the fall. That's like what I remember like from that. Oh movie. yeah, hmm. I mean, when was the first time you saw this movie? I must have also seen this movie in theaters the summer that it came out. Question mark If it was the summer, I um, think so. I must have seen it in theaters. It was probably while living on the island, so we would have had to go up to like Nags Head and see it. I remember at the time that it came out being like, oh, there's too much going on in this movie. They wish they'd had two movies. And like, I'm just a little overwhelmed by all of what's going on. On, a, on this rewatch, which may be the first time I've watched it all the way through again, mm. I think that my opinion has changed somewhat. I first saw this movie at a blockbuster i didn't i didn't rent it but there was like a surviving blockbuster in this small town that we were visiting with my family i remember it was probably a year or two after this came out and i didn't know that this movie existed but mm -hmm. i saw it there and i was like oh they made like another x-men and it's like a prequel 
So I have that distinct memory of the last time I was ever in a blockbuster. Were you like, you didn't think it was going to be good? I feel like, right? Because I didn't think it would be capacity. Yeah, I wasn't interested enough to rent it. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I think also like what's wild about this movie now is how many famous actors it has when they're really young. Mm. Right. But at that point, I probably didn't know many of those actors. So I wasn't necessarily like, oh, I can't believe that Jennifer Lawrence is in this. Yeah. It wasn't the star-studded film that you think of it as being now. Yeah, right. Like absolutely. That yeah, you you kind of pointed that out earlier. Like that they all kind of hit. They went right over the edge. Yes. Yes. Right after that point, kind of. So I think I actually watched this on my iPad in the car on the way to see the sequel, Days of Future Past. No way. Was the first time that I ever watched this. Was like in the lead up to that. I liked it, but I wasn't like it's incredible. And then when I watched, when I showed all these movies to my little brother, this was the one that he like loved. And I was like, oh, really? And I was like, this one's good, but it still wasn't my thing. Uh, and then, yeah, this time I think it all clicked a little bit more. Let me get into the stats here before we, before we do it. This movie, X-Men First Class, was directed by Matthew Vaughn, mm-hmm. who you may remember as the man who signed on to direct X-Men The Last Stand and then dropped out before production started. So he had up, up until this point directed Layer Cake, Stardust, and Kick-Ass. Stardust? Oh, I love that movie. Stardust is so good. So if you're keeping track of the series so far, <laughs> um, this is the fifth movie. Uh-huh. So we've watched the original trilogy. We've watched the first movie in the Wolverine trilogy. Mm. And this is the start of the Decades Quadrology, <laughs> as it is eloquently known. Because this movie is set in the 1960s, and there's a series of four movies where one takes place each decade leading up to X-Men 2000, the original. So so this is the furthest back into the past we get in any of the movies, right? Yeah. In their past, at least. Or is it? Or yes. Is, does Except Wolverine for in Wolverine Origins, who was apparently born in like yeah. the 1840s or something. Okay. There's the title credit sequence in that, but the bulk of that movie takes place after Yeah, it this. does take okay. place in the 60s okay. and 70s. In the timeline, yes. So this is the, the furthest point. So it's kind of like a Star Wars deal. Like yes. The newer... The movie, the older, the like stuff in it. Um, this movie was written by. <laughs> I mean, has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, this movie was written by Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz, who are a writing team who wrote. Are they together? Uh, no, they're both men. Not oh. that that means they couldn't be together, but they aren't. <laughs> they had written before this Agent Cody Banks, <laughs> the seminal <laughs> classic. <laughs> And um, this same year, they wrote Thor. Really? Yeah. And I'm not sure if they actually have any credits after this. I don't want to misrepresent them, but they had those under their belts. And then it was rewritten by Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughn, who are also a writing team. Matthew Vaughn, the director, writes all of his movies with Jane Goldman. So this is the first time that any of these movies has been written or co-written by the director. Hmm. And the first time any of these movies has been written or co-written by a woman. Has it ever been directed by a woman? Not so far. No? And I don't think we ever get that. The music was by Henry Jackman, who had also done the music for Vaughn's last movie, Kick-Ass. The music in this is Kick-Ass. It's so good. It is really great. It Mm -hmm. ran two hours and 12 minutes. (sighs) 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, much longer than um, we like to see. Had a budget of $160 million, so we estimate it would have needed to make $320 million to break even. Made three hundred and fifty, so it was a success, but not uh, not a huge hit. And it was released June third, two thousand eleven, nine whole years ago. Here we go. This is from Richard Brody at the New Yorker. <laughs> he says the best films of two thousand eleven exalt the metaphysical, the fantastical, the transformative, the fourth wall breaking, or simply the impossible, and remarkably do so. These films depart from reality, not in order to forget the irrefutable, but in order to face it, to think about it, and to act on it more freely. Um, that being said, let me read to you <laughs> Jesus. Some great- the top 10 highest grossing films of 2011. Harry Potter 7, Part 2. Deathly Hallows. Oh, That's the highest really? grossing. More Deathly, more Hallows. Oh, wait, grossing or yeah, like... Yeah, highest grossing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, $1.3 billion. Wow. Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Pirates of the Caribbean 4 on Stranger Tides. No. That was the third highest? Yeah. Are you looking at domestic or international? <laughs> he doesn't know. Twilight Breaking Dawn. <laughs> because I would be shocked if the Pirates movies were still that successful, but maybe they no, were. I think they were. But you know, you know, overseas, they love Johnny Depp. Uh, That's why they put Johnny Depp in really? all those movies, because they make so much money overseas. Okay. He's just rolling in it. He is rolling in a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Twilight. Breaking Dawn, which is also the fourth movie. Part one, also a two-part movie for yeah, the final the in the thing. series. That was the thing God, that year. that was so bad. Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, mm-hmm. Kung mm. Fu Panda 2, Fast Five. Oh, okay. The Hangover Part 2, <sighs> The Smurfs. Was there original movie that you the Smurfs? <laughs> and Cars 2. The best year ever for cinema ever. <laughs> since, well, since 1939. <laughs> Say no more. I get it. I get it. But you will note that it, this year for the Oscars, best picture, best director, and best actor all went to the same for the same film. Uh-huh. Um, Hamilton the musical. <laughs> Michelle Hazanavicius. Uh, is the director okay? Okay. How many Jean, more people can we offend? Dujardin. <laughs> Jean Dujardin is the actor, and the film is the artist. <laughs> Why is it so funny? Because it's just like I mean, it's nowhere on this top ten list, man. That's real. It didn't make any money. No, they never do. The best pictures never do. That's fair. But that's just our snapshot at 2011 in film. I'm sorry. Do you have any examples of why they think it's the best year in film? No. <laughs> okay. No, cool. there, was, there were literally no quotes that included. Because <laughs> I can't any, think of any other things. Any movie that they Wait, actually thought Emmett was Emmett made good, up his he? talking voice like five <laughs> minutes before this. Best <laughs> year ever. They were just like, this is some good shit. It probably hasn't been better since before they were, you could talk Do you movies. think they were talking about money made? I have no... I mean, because it's completely unclear. Because if they're talking about money made, maybe it was like the biggest year I for film. I think they were talking about sheer innovation. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah. Well, they shot fault. in black and white, so right. It's fake news, man. I think it's funny that the only year that they thought was equal to 2011 is the last year that a black and white movie won Best Picture. <laughs> 
that wraps it up for okay the many great movies apparently mm. many great movies supposedly came out in 2011 is this one of them anna let me ask you first x-men first class flop or bop oh my gosh <laughs> the question i've been waiting for all evening i think it's a bop mm-hmm mm-hmm Right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, I think we should talk about it. <laughs> okay, Emma Flabber Bop. Bop, baby. Yeah, this thing is truly a bop. This is the most metal of any X-Men movie. It's um, so good. It's so good. Where do we begin? Okay, so I want to tell you guys the first thing I wrote down after I dug around in my notebook, in my bag for a notebook, because I saw both of you were writing on notebooks. So the very first thing I wrote down was Magneto. <laughs> origin story <laughs> yeah and like that's like the immediate thing i got walking away from like the opening scene we like in our first year of film we learned that like following the person you meet the fir- like the immediately in a film mm-hmm. that you follow through the film as your protagonist right like you identify most closely with whatever it's almost like a baby duckling like the first person you see is who you think the film's about mm, like that's yeah. opening scene right and so it's impossible for us. So, like, and, and movies that have broken this, uh, uh, like form or like almost unconscious, like form, um, kind of are, are either terrible or exhilarating because they're like bringing you something that you've, you like don't know how to feel about. Mm. It's like, it's unconsciously like uncomfortable to you. The fact that, that like we are met with like our, almost like our villain mm-hmm. in a way in a vulnerable position, I was like, damn, like we can't, we can't, he's us, he's the self, like we cannot never, hate this person anymore since yeah we, we've learned about him he's so good in this movie yeah. do we think he's the protagonist i mean i, I... <sighs> who makes the change oh, that's a good question because it's got to be him or charles right it's one of the two of them no not necessarily okay it, i think i think in a way it's hard to pinpoint that in this, like in exactly because i think it's a lot of characters origin stories yeah like in a big way like right like i've never been that intimate in mystique's life before that she was Mm -hmm. almost like a sex symbol at least in like the early comic books and the like even the first three three movies i don't remember her being much more than that right like she feels very in-depth to me i see her change the biggest almost right because she literally goes from the side of good to like the side of darkness perhaps like Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah, and she does show she up. She leaves early him on. on the beach, man. She yeah. leaves him on the beach. Yeah, that's true. So that's rough. I mean, their love story, like Magneto and Charles and Charles's love story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, truly, right? I know, like, truly, that is what this movie is about. Yeah, it's like the the Charles Magneto. Is it an eternal triangle? Do you think it's like more than that though? Because she's got Beast too. She's like, and also because Charles has Moira. Yeah, and Charles has so, Moira, and Charles has feelings for for Mystique. Yeah, no, in a weird way. There's like some weird like thing going un- on. But she has feelings love. for him. That's unrequited love, I think. Yeah. Still love. Yeah, but it's I think so he still weird. loves her. I don't know if he like like way. loves yeah. her. Yeah, there's. A I lot think of his weird... line is really interesting at the end, where he's like, "I've promised you a great many things," mm. and he's where he's just like admitting his defeat in the relationship. I think Charles wants to be the good guy, like he wants to do the right thing, mm. but I think he ultimately is in the same way, just like Magneto, like willing to break the rules when he wants to like right like he he tells her he'll read her mind even Mm. though he promised her he wouldn't like 
he decides that it's okay to make that guy on the ship like press that button to kill potentially yeah. kill somebody because he decides right like then it's, yeah it's all right mm. yeah i feel like there's a case to make for mystique being the protagonist of this movie if she wasn't like so underwritten in it i feel like her, as far as just like she has a good character arc but she doesn't have a lot of good character dialogue i would say yeah i know what you mean yeah she doesn't seem as prominent as the two men mm-hmm well, it also, I mean, she has clearly drawn relationships to almost like every man in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's all like the thrust of it seems to be about the two men's relationships. For sure. Do, do you have any thoughts written down while you were watching? For who the protagonist is? Yeah. I'm trying to think of like Charles's arc through this movie. Okay. I've got like stuff for Magneto, kind of, of like you see Magneto discover the dark side of the force in this like early on as a kid he discovers the dark side of the okay force, yeah and then he's like toying with that for the rest of the movie and it's kind of like will he won't he will he embrace like the power of acceptance and love to like power him or will he like embrace the power of hatred yeah that, like either of those things can feed him which is much more of a choice that he has to make than anything that Charles does. I, I think like I think like truly it's be- about them because the thing I think of happening that would make this movie like would make you the thing you want, right? Mm-hmm. Is you want Charles to win him over. Like you right. want mm. Charles to help Magneto be the to reach his potential. Right. right. And his like true find that true goodness and love in his heart. But like I think what I really thought about this time I watched it through was he's the victim of such tragedy mm-hmm. like yeah. he in a way like charles is the like well-off like sophisticated mm-hmm. guy with money like never had to want for a thing in his life yeah but like magneto is like a child soldier like he's yeah he's been touched by such darkness in his life like there's no coming back from that in a sense he is he's just lives in a different world than charles yeah but we want to watch charles save him Mm. right we want him to be okay yeah there's definitely some class dynamics on this movie's mind i Mm. mean like starting off juxtaposing um the holocaust and then going straight to like the big empty mansion Mm -hmm. and Mm. he's like my mom like has never come into this kitchen like the maid only does it like that is definitely on the mind of this movie i think it i think you're right and i think it might be eric because I think he makes the choice there at the end to like give up on Charles mm. in a certain way. I think like the choice happens in the room with Sebastian Shaw. Hmm. Do you think it has to do with his power? Because this, like, what you just said about that, he makes the choice to leave him. Like, you hear him say some really like some real bullshit right at the end, right? Where he's kind of like, "Oh, this is them." Like, he has to hold on to the anger. This is they like did this to you, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, "No, no, like." like you did it to me and he's holding him accountable and he can't deal with that like right like he can't deal with that at all he has to hold on to the anger because that's the only way he can produce oh, his power yeah. and yeah. i wonder if he's wor- like scared like i can't do it without this or like this i can't let go of this this is all i am yeah oh. that's kind of a thing in the movie too because he talks about like needing to be angry to do like the big work and then charles is trying to get him to like find that place in the middle to like access more of his power but it makes you wonder what would have happened to him if he could have stayed with charles longer i mean it's not necessarily charles's fault like i think it is eric does make the decision there but 
I think, yeah, it's the minute he like puts that that helmet on and he chooses to like kind of shut out Charles's voice mm. altogether, right? Like, yeah, because it's when Charles when he does his best work in uh, out out in the in the country with the um, satellite or whatever it is he picks up with his mind. It's like tr- right before that, Charles gave him like love. He yeah. said, you know, remember mm. this memory you lost about your your mother and like how much you loved her. And he does this amazing thing. But it's like all he can hold on to most of the time is is that hate. That scene is so good. Another thing pointing to Eric being the uh, protagonist of this film is the fact that we get about 30 solid minutes of this movie is just him killing Nazis. <laughs> and when you just have one character killing Nazis for most of the movie, you can assume that that Antifa warrior is the protagonist. <laughs> yeah, right? He's like the true extremist. Yeah. I mean, everyone is on their own journeys until they come together. But we do start with him. We do follow him. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there's like three storylines. There's, there's, uh, what's there's, her name? What's Moira? Yeah, Moira. There's Moira. There's Charles and Raven kind of together. Uh-huh. And then there's Magneto. Yeah. I feel like Moira's storyline kind of gets muddled. Like I feel like, le- oh, yeah. Like I didn't yeah. really much care for. It. Like it didn't matter to me. There's also kind of the Sebastian Shaw storyline because we cut yeah. back to him a lot too like all of the, like the political gobbledygook that he's enacting see and this is this was like my problem with it when i first watched it and this was the problem with it for me for like the first half of this movie i was not i was like enjoying it but i was like laughing at it and i was like this is so over the top and it's fun is it a but little it, phantom menace yeah but it's like <laughs> a little like incomprehensible and just like like, why mm. do these, like, all of the, you're showing me all of these disparate things, but, like, well, how do they all tie together? And I don't think they actually do tie together in a way that makes logical sense, but they make emotional sense. And it, like, is a very satisfying conclusion, despite, like, really kind of bungling, like, how the, all, like, the plots and plans tie together. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I do think the plotting of this movie is pretty wild. (laughs) Trying to think back to like all that happens in the order we see it. But it's like, in my mind, there's no question that this movie works. Oh, for sure. Despite that. We kind of forgive any sort of plot, like... (laughs) pulls on the mind right these kinds of gigantic jumps uh in like space or time or even like just like with like crazy shit happening like them like killing uh uh one of the young mutants right like it's just like a lot of stuff and it feels like a comic book to me it doesn't feel normal because i'm like oh they just break the lines like they're like we do what we want here and i feel like they really did take that essence straight like and like make it into this crazy movie you're like i don't know what's gonna happen next but I think we forgive all that because you're right. It is so emotional. I like the whole movie. I just felt like I wanted them all to be okay. Like I wanted them all to feel like and to be together and to be able to keep moving forward. And like you can see that like brain trust thing like, kind of happening mm-hmm. at that mansion. Yeah. And it just kind of all falls apart. Yeah. I think they really nailed that main relationship and that anchors you in. Yeah. Although even I was into it even before that, like from the jump. This it's also, I think, like the most brutal, like there's some truly Uh, grotesque stuff that happens in this movie. And I feel like because it's so bright and poppy and colorful, it goes down a little bit smoother. But like it's intense. Dude, it is a dark German drama for parts of it. It is like. (laughs) it's like scary and there's like part like 
I feel like Magneto is in at least seven different James Bond films over the course of this movie. Totally. I felt that too. And it's a little comical. So for a weird, weird way, like even looking at the boat at the end, like I was like, their comic, their, uh, their costumes seem so comic to me. Yeah. They seem like they're in a different movie, but yeah. like, yeah, at the beginning, um, I met, I missed their like straight up opener, but I, I know something like intense happens there, right? Does his, da- does his dad actually with- die or? Because uh, he's just torn away from his parents. Yeah, he's taken away from his parents, okay. and then he like pulls the gate back. He pulls the it's gate. The first back. time That's, he uses his powers. Yeah, I remember that happening to him, and I just remember. And yeah, his mother is like shot before his eyes. Yeah, and he holds, and then that that gives all the significance to. I would like to. I would like to notice. I did not remember this, but he f- like flicks that coin right in the future and then it's mm-hmm. like suddenly x-men so what is this is this like some symbolism for like you know the 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 burden he has to bear the yeah. thing that he has carries mm. through the movie is he gonna do it or not is he gonna flip flip a coin right is yeah. he gonna land head or tails good yeah, or is evil he gonna come down as a nazi yeah. or as an x what's he gonna do yeah. with that coin right it's like the gun in the beginning of a play like <laughs> what's gonna happen but it's also a good representation of like them being two sides of the same coin as well of, like right? magneto and professor x being like you know for real for real images of each other let me i'm gonna go ahead and dive into the behind the scenes up early because i feel like it relates to a lot of the things that we're cool. touching on here right on um so this movie began development in 2004 immediately after x2 where fox hired uh sheldon turner who at this time had written nothing, goes on to write a movie I really like, Up in the Air, to write mm-hmm. X-Men Origins Magneto. So they greenlit two movies after the success of X2, and it was X-Men Origins Wolverine and X-Men Origins Magneto. They're going to be these oh. two prequel films. Turner's pitch for the movie was that it was going to be The Pianist Meets X-Men. Wow. It, his, uh, his script took place from 1939 to 1955. Then it followed a young Magneto as he tried to survive Auschwitz. He meets Xavier, who is a liberation soldier, at the end. And they like become friends, but then he wants to hunt down and kill all of the Nazis. And that like turns him and charles against each other whoa huh that was his original script it was supposed to come out in 2009 um the same time as wolverine they're supposed to come out the same year and it was going to be directed by david s goyer who directed blade trinity and who wrote batman begins but the production of it was delayed because of the 2007 2008 writers guild strike meanwhile simon kinberg who was one of the co-writers of The Last Stand, read the 2006 comic line called First Class, which does not have the same story or team as this movie, but is kind of like a young X-Men prequel. And he brought it to the producer, Lauren Schuler Donner, and she said, this is good. We're going to do it as a sequel to X-Men Origins Magneto. Okay. So they were going to do the Magneto solo movie, and then this movie was going to be a sequel to that about forming the team. It was written by Josh Schwartz, who is the creator of the OC. Oh. I think we huh. see a little bit of that like teen yeah. drama seep into this. They asked Brian Singer to direct, but he was directing Valkyrie, a movie that has some similarity to this. Yeah, and a movie that unfortunately I also really like. <laughs> But Singer did a treatment for the script. He basically wrote like a like ten page mm-hmm. what 
the his story was. Okay. Um, and then he and Sheldon Turner, who wrote the Magneto script, get story credit on this. Okay. And Singer's pitch was that it was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Fox liked his pitch better, and they killed the Magneto movie and focused on this. So then they hired the team, Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stenz, to write a draft based on Singer's story. They said their main focus was on the relationship between Eric's and Eric and Xavier. Uh, Matthew Vaughn signed on in 2010. They asked him after they saw Kick-Ass, which was a big success the year before, uh, and he agreed because he was given a chance to reboot the universe, kind of in the style of Batman Begins and Star Trek, to like have a fresh early take on this, uh, and because he wanted to make an X-Men film, a Bond film, and a Frankenheimer political thriller. Wow. Those were like his ambitions with this movie. What is the third? That's the man from the 60s who made like the Manchurian Candidate. Um. Kind of those like old don't trust the government political thrillers. Kind of immediately in that post Nixon era. I think he hit all three. Yeah, I think he did. (laughs) Yeah, knocked it out of the park with all of them. (laughs) For sure. He definitely completed what he intended. He also said, uh, this is a quote from him, I'd rather... People's expectations are low and they're excited than high and disappointed. And this is a thing he's talked about before, too, that he's kind of the guy who likes coming on when a franchise is on the low Uh and really revitalizing. uh, it. Yeah. He doesn't really like to do the sequel to like the loved movie. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah, hey. Um, so then he rewrote it with Jane Goldman, his writing partner. It says that they their two focuses were that they cut a Moira love triangle that was in the original draft okay by ashley and zach and that they their main focus was on making the charles eric relationship believable in the amount of time that it happens in okay because this movie takes place over like two weeks yes because the cuban missile crisis took place over two weeks (laughs) it was filmed in oxford and in savannah georgia filming went on up until a month before it came out jesus it was so down to the wire which is surprising to me looking at it because it looks pretty good i mean i think part of it is the time this is the first of these films that felt like a modern film to me for sure Mm -hmm. i think they had such like quality cast that that probably helped too yeah vaughn's main inspiration was the 1960s bond films he said his model for eric was sean connery being charming and ruthless as bond uh and he tried really hard to film it in the same way as those movies uh so he shot the whole thing in anamorphic and he wanted quote very traditional framing camera movement only when it needs to move not just throwing it around in whiz bang Ooh, a reaction to old Michael Bay. <laughs> so I knew that going in, but I was struck by like paying attention to it, like how little the camera moves, like mm. how much of it is like stable one shot. Like it does look so fresh and poppy, but it is shot kind of like one of those old movies. He also mentioned like the casual misogyny of the 60s hmm. was something they were trying to integrate into it. I think he I think he definitely knocked that <laughs> out of the park as well. I definitely had some cringeworthy moments. Yeah. No, I sure. think he like I think with the with now that you say that about all of the static shots, it contributes I think a lot to a comic book effect because you are seeing mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. panel 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 and not really much movement within it and like I think of that scene where he walks into the two uh 
kind of old boys in the bar, German old boys. Mm -hmm. And he's like, they're like, we're just following orders. And you kind of see like him, them, like his like Mm -hmm. gun or knife or whatever it is. And like, and it's like, and then it all happens. It feels very like quick, even though they're not using like what you're saying, like all that. Yeah. Whiz bang. In the training montage, it's like literally panels for parts of it where stuff is going on in certain sections and it's like segmented away from everything else. Mm. So that's the history. This movie was well received when it came out. Um, it had got a 65 on Metacritic. So that was between the 64 that the first one got and the 68 that X2 got. The quote I pulled for this one was Lisa Schwartzbaum writing for Entertainment Weekly, who wrote, McAvoy and Fassbender are a casting triumph. These two have, yes, real star magnetism, both individually and together. They're both cool and intense suave and unaffected playful and dead serious about their grand comic book work wow high praise yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i i couldn't uh i think she's right she's right yeah Yeah, i couldn't disagree um he's so hot (laughs) (laughs) should we go through the actors yeah should we talk about them should we talk about who's in there because like a huge appeal about this is that now it's like all these hot young stars right before they're about to explode okay well i guess we should start with mcavoy Mm -hmm. as charles he had done before this narnia and atonement he's mr tumness (laughs) narnia and it looks shocked no i remember i remember that like as you said narnia i was like oh shit he's mr (laughs) tumness he had also been in the children of dune sci-fi miniseries no way really (laughs) yeah as leader the second yeah which is the first thing he did oh i remember him in atonement though he was like oh <laughs> Just so good. <laughs> yeah, Anna, do you want to talk about <laughs> James in this movie? <laughs> oh, there's like never a dull moment when James is on the stage. <laughs> if he's listening, James, I love you. <laughs> no, but seriously, I really love him. I think he's so believable to me. I never, even with his weird little. Yeah, the fingers, the, the holding all the fingers. Fingers on the forehead thing. Like, I would never have noticed that being weird if we hadn't pointed it out, but it happens almost too much. Yeah. I almost don't like it. But I guess that's how it is in the comic book. Yeah. That's what he does. He said that he purposely didn't watch the old movies because he didn't want to emulate Patrick Stewart. Which makes sense because he's doing something very different. And I don't think Stuart ever does the fingers thing. But I think he like pulls it off. No, I think he does. He does. It's like, right? It's like so hard. He's almost like too young to play this part. But I think he makes it work. (sighs) Like, look, I guess it's looking at him now because I'm used to seeing him like older. It feels like this is a part that he could play now, but I think he like... I think it's better that he was younger. Yeah. Because it shows all of his like idealistic optimism mm. and uh, that they end up enemies. Like truly we go into this. It's like, um, what was that Star Wars movie that came out? The, uh, the, mo- the Maltese... F- no. Is that what it's the called? The Maltese Falcon? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. What's the one about the plans? Oh, oh yeah, Rogue One. Rogue One, one yeah. where they're basically like, you know what happens to them. Yeah. You yeah. know how that story ends. Yeah. Yeah. And this pulled re- really pulled that because you have to be a good movie to make people continue to watch, right? Like, yeah. and this pulls that off. Yeah. You know you're going to be disappointed. You know something bad is going to happen to these people that you're growing to love. Yeah. We talked about the prequel problem last mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. about like where you know where a lot of these characters end up. 
And so it's like harder to get invested in them. How do you think this movie subverts the prequel problem, like moves past it? It just pretends that the other movies, it sets itself back far enough that it just pretends mm. that the movies that are coming up are not there in in a lot of ways it's like we don't even have to get you all the way to like magneto and charles hating each other we just have to get you to him being magneto and charles not being able to walk and like we don't have to explain like everybody else's backstory like the only other characters that you'll see in the future like in the previous movies that have already come out that are in the future of this movie is mystique i think yeah mystique and beast and there's such an open-ended ending for both of their characters in this movie i mean mystique chooses to go with eric but we know that she that we know that's where she winds up at the beginning of the first one and like not not to mention magneto right like he has a great choice to make i think yeah and they make the stakes so impossibly high for these characters right like we want to see them succeed even if though we know they might not like or even though we know they probably won't right and and that love story like you're learning something i think the true friendship Magneto finds in Charles, like the true kindred spirit he finds in Charles is a story I didn't know before this movie. So it Mm. burns so much better Mm. knowing that like they were best friends right up until the moment when he like kind of just decides he makes his choice, right? Like, yeah, it's like this long plea. I think that they really thought they only had one movie to do all of this. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And it's hard for me to say if that's like to its credit like if it would have been better with or without it because i think this movie is awesome and i love all the stuff at the end but it does kind of feel like they were at the end of the movie and they were like oh right he's got to get in the wheelchair they've got to turn evil mystique's got to go you know like it feels like it has a little bit of the solo thing where they're like we have to explain everything about the backstory in two hours but on the other hand the third act is the best part yeah no, I, yeah, I for mean, sure. like, yeah, the, I, I mean, like, is the part is like the most coherent and the most like kick ass. Yeah. How does it feel for you guys? I think there's so much in my mind already about those characters mm-hmm. that like a part of it felt like natural to me. Right. Because like it's it's almost like what I know has to happen. So I'm happy to see it explained at yeah. least they're like accounted for. Mm-hmm. Although I will say I hated the whole like naming of the characters bits. Like, oh, you should be a Magneto and you should be <laughs> Professor X. <laughs> That's uh, how our names came to be. Also, everybody needs like a powers <laughs> intro in this. Yeah. Like everybody gets just like a scene to show and off to what their fair, power is. And to be fair, like those, those kids don't really matter like as much as certain characters. Like right. they're not necessarily like the biggest uh, mutants you hear about i feel like they, they give them a fair amount of screen time yeah. like there's not a huge focus on them yeah i like the classic uh mystique bit where you see her like they're kind of trying to plead their case to the cia and you see her do a quick switch into like the random like white guy in the corner like leading the meeting and i feel like that's like classic mystique comic book style or like other movies where she's just walking through the building and you're like you don't know it's her but you're like that's mystique i know it you know (laughs) yeah for sure um okay i guess let's keep going down the cast you've got fassbender Mm -hmm. as eric Mm -hmm. what a dreamboat he crushes it (laughs) he crushes it and he crushes nazis skulls he is the radical left your parents warned you about (laughs) he is sanders he is everything (laughs) um he is he is honestly 
I mean, he's a protagonist. It's like for such a hard, hard man, his his eyes are so soft when he looks at Charles. <laughs> he is the charming, dangerous Sean Connery he like is? character. Yeah. He's like, does you it better than love Sean him. Connery did? You want to love him. He had um, done Band of Brothers when he was much younger and Inglorious Bastards before this. But he did this and Shame, both in 2011. Oh I don't know if you guys have seen Shame. But those yeah. were like his breakouts. That's when... God, that movie is rough. Yeah. Oof, I've never I seen hated that watching that movie. But it was because it was so like, it makes you feel how you're supposed to feel, but you don't want to feel it. Okay. Yeah, it's about sex addiction. It's like it's too very good. Slimy. It's too good. Uh, it yeah. makes you feel gross, wow. but you like, like not gross. You just feel like you uh, you feel the shame. I think he does the same thing as McAvoy, where you believe all the hand stuff he does. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. he does it with such conviction that you're like, well, I can't tell him he looks silly. And yeah. he, like, I also think this movie is maybe the first in the series where we see actors who are able to escalate. Like, actors who start playing in this heightened realm, but then, like, really bring it to 11 in the third act. Yeah, they know where to go. And, like, we would be remiss if we did not mention Kevin bacon as one of those actors who brings it okay, all can we just the third act. Kevin bacon talk then. about for a second how for the first like i want to say at least 15 to 30 minutes of this movie kevin bacon speaks only with a german accent and then suddenly is miraculously like unaccented for the rest of the movie like <laughs> so normalized it makes me feel weird like i don't know what's happening <laughs> his german accent He's terrible. Faded away <laughs> in the worst way possible. It's like he's reading the Google Translate of what the German line should be. Like and the other person acting with him is a native-born speaker. He's a Transylvanian like vampire. Like It's like very put on. I like that they felt the need to explain why he looks young. Mm-hmm. Which I do remember like being a thing. I don't know. I don't think he looks like incredibly young i think he looks great but it was like a thing where they were like kevin bacon never ages how does he do it and then they like felt the need to explain that his mutant power keeps him young in this i thought it was just because he would have been like if he was like that old in the 40s he should have been like in his i don't know like 60s yeah it should technically be a different character the same way the kid's like a different character but you want to be able to recognize him I think it's 18 years between the prologue and... He feels so comic to me for some reason. Like, have you seen him in River Run or River Wild with Mm -mm. Meryl Streep? No. He is so scary. He's like, he plays this really terrifying villain in that movie. But for some reason in this, I think it's just because like I've seen him in more like comic stints. Mm -hmm. Or like, I think I've seen him on Will and Grace or something. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, he doesn't seem... It didn't feel like as menacing as that guy could be or should be. That felt yeah. comical, almost. Yeah, he is playing yeah. it a little bit bigger. <laughs> I like... Okay, something I will say to this movie's credit is that we've seen four of these movies and there have only been two bad guys so far. There's been Magneto, there's been William Stryker. Uh-huh. So I'm so happy to have a new villain, like a different threat. This movie does kind of, again, re-centralize like, the Eric Charles conflict. Mm-hmm. But... It is cool to see him. It's cool to see Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Shaw, not the English actor who played Darth Vader, but the character. I would like to mention that when they go back in time in the early movies, they're so much older <laughs> than they would have been like in yeah. this two week 
Like, I guess, does Magneto come back around and, like, help him with the school? Because doesn't, don't they go and, like, search for kids? Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to get into that a little later when we get into the continuity. I guess we can step into the continuity corner here. here? (laughs) We'll get back to the cast in a moment. Yeah. So what do we see here that directly contradicts anything we've seen before? So we've got a couple. Or I guess we should just, so this movie takes place in 62, Mm -hmm. right? 1962. And in 62, we see Professor X get in the wheelchair but still have his hair. Mm -hmm. And then when does Origins take place? Origins takes place in 79. So in 79, he is walking but bald. Okay. Right? And then in 86, he is also walking but bald. So that at least seems like a contradiction. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> in that he's paralyzed in this one and not later. Yeah, it does. It does we seem also like a contradiction. See... Also, the breakup with Magneto seems like a contradiction because he's with Magneto in that scene in 1986 in Last Stand. Yeah. 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 So yeah. those are contradictions. I guess we know now that there are three more prequels mm-hmm. that may address back and forths. We also see Emma Frost here who we as an seen... adult who is a child in, in 69. In 79. 79. Oh, okay. In the Wolverine movie. Yeah. Maybe uh, that's a different character with the exact, like same, ability. exact same abilities. It's very strange. There's also um, Alex Summers. We also see Wolverine. Well, here. that's that's not a contradiction. Yeah, though, I guess not because he always looks like that. He could be anywhere at any yeah. time. We see him and he drops the first F-bomb in one of these PG-13 movies. Damn. Which shows that like Fox will push that envelope a little more than the other studios do. What yeah. does he say? F-off? Yeah. Go. No, I think go it says F- go. Yeah. 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 This is a fun little cameo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I worked out the Summers thing. Oh, okay. You um, we see Alex Summers, who is the brother of Scott Summers, who is Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Alex Summers looks like he's about 16 mm-hmm. in 1962. And Scott looks like he's about 30 in 2000 which would put about a 22 year difference between them so it seems unlikely i mean a mom could have had one of them at 18 and one at 40 could it be his kid yeah but in the books they're yeah i mean the comics they're definitely brothers oh they um, are brothers yeah historically but but it could be movies i don't know i mean how you feel about bacon in this his plan is like stated pretty clearly early on and i like that i do like a villain where we just like kind of know what they're they're gonna do he is not a humanized villain at all yeah he is not the most compelling villain though he's not like we don't get really get a sense of like other than just like i will have ultimate power yeah what he's doing he feels like an empty evil german to me yeah he's kind of likable but he's certainly not compelling like i don't think you ever want him to win no he's like the mustache twirling villain but he's played as like kind of like somewhat charming because it's kevin bacon he he's like serves the purpose i think of the hitler of the mutants right like he he doesn't uh put up with any infighting he doesn't Mm. want the mutants to hurt other mutants and he feels strongly about that. I think that's the one compelling thing, if you could say compelling thing about him, is that he cares for his own kind, perhaps. But he definitely does seem like he's willing to just wipe out the other the other, the other guys. And he also kills a mutant. Yeah, he does kill Darwin, which 
Yeah. Is really weird. It's interesting to think of him kind of as like the father figure to Magneto in terms of like what Magneto takes from him versus mm. from other people. Cause Shaw starts off with Magneto's helmet. Mm-hmm. He has kind of the same ideology as Magneto, mm-hmm. but he's, they're obviously like, opposed Mm -hmm. because of their history i wrote something down about that how it's interesting that a that the victim truly like we start out with the victim of a genocide that's the first image we see right and then we find that same that same person kind of taking on the role as the uh perpetuator of a genocide Mm. in his own way like it's it's very like that kind of idea like war begets more war like a product of war kind of yeah let's move on to jennifer lawrence as mystique who had the year before this done winter's bone which was kind of like her breakout uh, yeah her breakout indie drama i know that she pursued this role like she chased it and really wanted it because she wanted to do something light after that she's i remember her saying that she was intimidated because she thought Rebecca Romjan was the most gorgeous woman in the world. So she clearly wow. agrees with you on that, Emma. Uh-huh. And we see Rebecca Romjan for a second here yeah. when when she like ages up to be a little bit older for Magneto. Oh, wow. uh, but this is Jennifer Lawrence like the year before Hunger Games and the ice skating movie. Oh, wow. The year before her like three-year stint as the most popular actress in the world. Hmm. How do we feel about her here? I guess let's talk Let's talk about first the performance and then the writing of the character. Because okay. they've made bold choices with both. I have a quote from Anna earlier, from earlier in this oh, evening God. while I'm you're watching the truths movie. truths now. Oh, Anna said, I've never hated her so much. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> In the scene with Nicholas Holt, she looks across and she says, I've never hated her so much. That's because I'm in love with Nicholas Holt. <laughs> oh, so it doesn't have to do with her acting chops. In I mean, that scene. I don't love her as an actor. I don't know what it is. It's not that she's not maybe maybe I think it was it came about after this movie, to be honest, because I think before this movie she did feel really like genuine. I think it was when um, she started. Get, she was put in uh, American Gangster. Was that what mm-hmm. it was? American, American Hustle? American Hustle. And I remember thinking, like, she just doesn't seem like she's just her in all the movies she's ever in. She doesn't really take on characters. It's just I get to watch Jennifer Lawrence live her life in that movie. Mm. And I just feel like before that movie, she did kind of like take on roles for me. But I don't know. I don't know. She feels like she kind of taps into like raw emotion of the scene but doesn't necessarily have like a ton of control over what level she puts it out at like in terms of her craft and her tool i hope that doesn't come off as too harsh it feels like she's just like she can get the mood of the scene and she can really go for it but she can't necessarily like control it in a certain way she was really new right like wasn't she not an actor before winter's bone wasn't she just so. a regular yeah, she hadn't human? Done much. Yeah. yeah. I I feel like part of what's going on here is like when you have good writing, that sort of just like raw vehicle. raw it talent can you. can like work and you can be like, Oh yeah, she's really living it and she's speaking this really like intense language. But when the character's like so stripped down and so like I think the dialogue is whether or not like the character arc is well written, which we can talk about but like the dialogue itself is just like so poorly written for 
that it doesn't really like carry her anywhere on that like wave of her natural talent. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's no like no coward or anything. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like her character is kind of trapped in between the two worlds of like the adult Nazi hunting gay love affair drama <laughs> of the adults in this movie and like the OC inspired team like summer camp drama of the actual first class. Like she's kind of straddled in the middle there. And it's so strange because she is definitely like just Charles's age are like two years younger. Like they are the same. They're the same age. She she's... feels very little sister to me. Mm. I think it's because I've seen her in like sexy form, right? Like when Red Sparrow came out, even when like the hunting hunt, uh, eh, the um hunter games were out. Oh yeah. Um, she's like she is like a sex symbol in those days. Mm-hmm. And back here, you see her, she's like a kid. She really like makes me feel like mm. she's young and vulnerable and innocent, and I could see her. I think her arc happens a little too like quick and muddled. Mm. What is the arc? Just like going from Charles to Eric? I think the arc is... Or like accepting, accepting herself. Yeah. yeah, I think the arc is like truly deciding that she is satisfied with who she is and what she looks like. Because she starts out, as much as Charles says he, like, wants the mutants to, like, have freedom and, like, be a part of society, right? Like, that's his whole goal is to train them and help them and help all mutants everywhere. He really puts her in a box as far as her appearance. And he really, he says, like, she's not, like, normal. He doesn't accept her as a yeah. mutant as what mutant she is i think it's an origin story about why mystique in the original trilogy never wears clothes because at the end like because charles is like always like yo you've got to wear this uniform or you've got to like pretend to be a human person and like she's all she there's a scene specifically where she comes out she's all blue and he's like yeah why well, put on some clothes and and then like eric is like trying to induct her into his nudist colony <laughs> and he's like it's, it's okay. i turned to this emmett in beautiful. the middle of the movie right when he was talking to her and she's like leaning over on the bed like on her elbow and he's looking <laughs> down at her and he's saying you're the most beautiful you just like this you know like just like so and i go and i like leaned to emmett and i was like this this is how all cults are born. <laughs> like just a really attractive male, yeah. like giving a woman oh, the yeah. like attention and like, and like inspiration to be who she is, you yeah. know, and she'll do anything. Right. And, but I think that they do a good job of not making it just solely about him. Right. Because she goes through three mm. different men's opinions. It's like Charles, <laughs> it's Magneto. And then it's, it's Hank. Yeah. Right. And he does it in front of her and she chooses not to. But it's like he says like the same things Charles said to her. Basically, he's like, you're beautiful now, like in her in her like human suit. I think all that stuff is pretty well handled, actually. I think it's pretty compelling, too. She is like the most like Chekhov character and that she has like a distinct relationship with every single Mm. other person. And there's so much going on. Maybe if they had like written a few more female characters, she wouldn't have had to bear the weight <laughs> for of sure. that. I mean, we've got Moira too. I guess we, we should talk about Rose Byrne as Rose Moira Byrne, and Zoe sure. Kravitz. Yeah, yeah. Who are in uh, this movie? <laughs> I think Zoe Kravitz is good. I think so. I, I I think Rose Byrne as Moira is good. I think she has like a very strong entrance where you're like, oh, she's going to be a cool part of this movie, uh-huh. and then. 
she kind of disappears. She has a very Bond girl entrance. It feels like she suffers from rewrites, right? Because you said Mm. that she was originally a, like, there was a love triangle. And I think that element holds on in a weird way because when he kisses her at the end, I'm like, sure, cool, whatever. I could see them kissing. But I also don't really believe that he's, like, doing it out of love to, like, wipe her memory and he has to like sacrifice this thing he had with her like yeah. you don't really get much evidence of that mm-hmm. throughout the movie yeah, yeah i wish that had been better set up same exactly right i think it feels like something that was set up and then something got cut that didn't make it make sense anymore almost fully but they knew about yeah. it so it's like it stayed he hits on her the first time he meets her but we've just seen him do that to like some random woman before so that doesn't feel like personal to her. We're missing the aha moment where we're like, or they almost kiss. And we're like, oh, there it is. He's like super into her. Like he sees her in a different light. We're missing that moment. Yeah. Mm. We have the beginning and the end and not really the like. Yeah. That one scene. But instead she's like silently running around for like the middle hour of this movie. Yeah. And like yeah. is presumably like doing more to propel the action and like what actually happens in this film than a lot of what Charles and Eric are doing for the middle hour of this film. She seems like the clueless American <laughs> for, <real. laughs> for some reason to me. I guess yeah. like the, the clueless do-gooder. Like she really, mm. she got into the CIA for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, and now she's kind of like just flopping around. She does Bridesmaids the same year, oh, which wow. is also like her breakout. Yeah. So really all of them are like just about to pop. Um, <laughs> maybe unfortunate <laughs> yeah, wording. Uh, uh, we've got January Jones as Emma Frost coming off of Mad Men playing another 60s uh, wife type figure anyone have anything to say about emma frost um she feels i mean she feels very similar to her character in mad men i feel like she kind of took that and really built off of it if not like carbon copied it in like it feels like she is don draper's wife that has like he died and she had to make a living somehow so she like worked at this strip club and became like diamond encrusted you know like it just like took over her this direct um, sequel to like Mad Men. It, she doesn't seem like she's and i and i'm a big fan of january jones she was in um she was in that new netflix original uh spinning out you mentioned him a couple times we should talk about nicholas holt mm. as beast comes into this movie about <sighs> halfway through Oh, this is the only role that uh, wasn't originally cast with this actor. They cast uh, Benjamin Walker, who is a Broadway actor, who turned it down to do Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson on Broadway. Nicholas Holtz had done stuff before. He is the titular boy in About a Boy. Whoa. A really fun movie, if anyone's seen that. Wow. Um, And the year before this, he had done Clash of the Titans. So he had kind of done the action thing and then went into doing this. And then gets picked up by Brian Singer to be um, the titular Jack and the Giant Slayer in Singer's next so wait, movie. When was this. this made? 2011. Okay, so like from 2000, somewhere between 2007 and this, he was in Skins as Tony Stoneham, <laughs> and he was a dreamboat. Like wow. he. Any girl who has seen Skins will forever be in love with Nicholas Holt. <laughs> Like, I can't, he's like the bad boy that you just want to win over. And he's just Stone Cold Fox. I think that should be put in there. Okay. (laughs) That's good to note. Stone Cold Fox. I mean, you agree? Stone Cold Fox, Nicholas Holt? I do. Only after the transformation? Oh, I also, before we move on, before we move on, 
Kevin Bacon okay. apparently was a choice of it was a choice between two Kevin for that role Kevin uh-huh. Bacon okay. and Colin Firth unbelievable oh. and Colin they, Firth would have crushed that they decided against it because they felt like they felt like he was too lovable like Colin Firth was like too much of like um, wouldn't bring the same amount of grit mm. but they ended up casting him in another uh movie in like the whole spectrum uh, later on I feel like they should have gotten Kenneth Branagh well Firth also goes on to be like the co-lead of Kingsman, which is Vaughn's next yeah, movie. Yeah, that's the one. So yeah, that was clearly exactly. like on his mind. Yeah, right. It mm. would have been interesting. I think like he would have done something very different. But I think Bacon is like going for charming here. I just think, I don't know, maybe there's not enough there on the page. Maybe we don't see like the layers to him enough. It feels like he's always playing like the smiling bad guy. Like we never really see him break in a huge way. The like, the like uh, mm. mustached man on the, yeah. <laughs> on the train tracks. Oh, it feels sure. like it is like high melodrama for him. For sure. He always, he also feels like he's like you were saying, he like feels like the Senate in like Phantom Menace. <laughs> like he's always saying stuff that I like don't really <laughs> care about. Like I'm like, just get to it, man. Like no one cares about like, <laughs> this whole nonsense you're talking about oh yeah i guess we should get into that nonsense too <laughs> because i made emmett do a lot of research i will say as someone who knows nothing about the cuban missile crisis this movie made absolute sense to me but watching emmett watch it it seemed <laughs> they got a few details wrong okay so sit back Buckle your seatbelts <laughs> and hop on board the magic school bus because we're about to take a little trip back in time, ladies oh, and boy. gentlemen. Oh my God. The Cuban Missile Crisis, <clears throat> a book report. <laughs> to trace the cultural context of X-Men First Class, we need to kick it back to a little piece of paper called the Monroe Doctrine. Ever heard of it? No. No. Okay. Is it named after James Monroe? It is, in fact, named after President James Monroe. Okay. Who signed it into law in December of 1823, just 20 years before Wolverine was born. I'm, I'm very worried we're starting this far back. So, oh, no, no, no. So it's very important to understand the Monroe Doctrine because this plays into all this Soviet stuff. Okay. So the uh, Monroe Doctrine <laughs> Get to is, it, man. has four, four parts. I would like the listener to know that we're recording this after midnight. <laughs> completely gone off the rails. So the four, four things in the Monroe Doctrine are basically uh, the U.S. would not interfere in European countries' uh, like internal goings-on or in war between European countries. The U.S. would not interfere with European with Western Hemisphere colonies of European countries. The Western Hemisphere was officially closed for further colonization by this in 1823. They were like, they've done all they can. Done all the colonizing they can. Was that the OG, like, Asian Lives Matter? (laughs) Sorry, we're all on No, it was not. (laughs) Um, Any European attempt to control any Western Hemisphere nation will be seen as an, as an act, act of, of war. war. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. 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 And this, this is where it gets important. So this is the thing that starts to establish spheres of influence for different world powers. And this is kind of like when the U.S. begins to become a world power. So that's, that's all important. A couple world wars later, we have another doctrine that we need to, to school ourselves up on. It's the Truman Doctrine. Ever heard of this one? 
No. No. Okay. Signed in March of 1947, uh, right and like during all of the treaties that are being signed at the end of World War II, when Russia has become Soviet uh, in the early 1900s, we got them on the Allied side for World War II, but immediately after World War II, Britain, Britain and America decided to split with the Soviets and they kind of form these two major spheres of influence where the Soviets have control over all of Asia and like Russia, obviously, and like parts of the Middle East. England controls like like a lot of Europe and like the EU is established to or like strengthened and to control a lot of Europe. And America, like the USA, basically gets control over all of Latin America in terms of like spheres of influence. It also says that the Americans have a prerogative to prevent any Western hemisphere countries from falling to the influence of communism. And so they took this very, very seriously. It would be a complete disaster Hmm. if any of these Western hemisphere countries that are not America. So we're talking about basically just Latin America now because Canada was a British protectorate and is this the reason for like the vietnam war and like yeah this, exactly the, korean this, war? the truman doctrine is the reason for the korean war for the vietnam war and for like all sorts of shady shit going on in latin america in the 1980s it's also the, the source of our problem with cuba um because america america and cuba used to have like a pretty close mm-hmm. like commercial re- like trade yeah. relationship and like it was a great va- mm-hmm. vacation spot you know cuban cigars cuban rum so it was used to be this like big deal and then this in the 1960s, the CIA was getting paranoid that the that the Cuban revolutionaries were communist. They were like socialist communist revolutionaries. The CIA was in Cuba trying to overthrow the revolutionaries who just overthrown the American backed like and they got found out counter revolutionaries. Right? They got found out in the Bay of Pigs disaster. Yeah, and it was a complete embarrassment for the U.S. government, for the U.S. military, for the CIA. This was in 1961. In 1962, they the CIA detected intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is like that era's version of weapons of mass destruction. Showed pictures of weapons of mass destruction in Cuba. Um, said the Soviets are putting missiles on Cuba that's only 90 miles from Miami. They're about to bomb the shit out of the East Coast of the United States. Whoa. So then Kennedy, who was at this point president, ordered a blockade, a naval blockade around mm-hmm. Cuba, uh, much like the one that you see in this movie. And the Russians were sending more missiles and stuff there on ships like you see in this movie and it like got down to exactly like it says it was a 13 day event of like them like coming towards the line and the americans like holding the line (laughs) basically played the biggest game of chicken (laughs) yeah exactly and eventually khrushchev and kennedy decided they didn't want to be the ones to start nuclear war they came to an agreement in which russia would publicly disarm cuba of the missiles that it had put there the U.S. would privately disarm missiles that it had put in Turkey and Italy aimed at Russia, huh. but did not put that on American news sources. Um, and it was basically the point at which the U.S. broke diplomatic ties with Cuba in a major way, which allowed Cuba to fall under further influence uh, from Russia, allowed Fidel Castro to put up his regime there. 
Mm. And so it's like all of this is involved in like the reason that we still have this really messed up relationship with Cuba. It's all like has its roots in this stuff. And apparently it was all Sebastian Shaw's fault. <laughs> That's my book report on the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> Thank Damn. you. That was like not that far off from what we see in the movie. It, it's really not. Like it is the the main thing that I was like gasping over is like how they put Sebastian Shaw at every major moment of that story rather oh, than like right. getting parts of it wrong so much. It was just like, oh shit, like there he is, like telling the guy, oh, there's missiles in Turkey. There he is, like telling them to send a ship to Cuba, you know, like mm. he's like there moving all the parts because, of course, Sebastian Shaw wants nuclear war he's because the that will make shooter. him. Like, he's, the, he's the conspiracy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the cultural context for this film. It's important to note also that Eisenhower was the one who gave the CIA all the $13 million in like 1960s dollars which is like presumably billions in today's dollars to go and overthrow the revolutionaries there. So this was a plan that was orchestrated by Eisenhower, but carried out under Kennedy. Mm. Um, who are we who are we on uh cast wise? I think we've talked about most people. Okay. Um there's Caleb Landry Jones, who also kind of becomes a star as Banshee, and then he goes on and does a run of doing like two scenes in every Oscar movie mm-hmm. in Get Out and Three Billboards. He does like a run of that, but he's not really in much now. Oh, yeah, he was in Three Billboards. Huh. Are there any of like the first class of the Young Mutants that you guys particularly like? They're missing the favorites, is my feeling. Like, like I like Cyclops. what they do with all of the ones they have, but exactly they're Gray. missing Cyclops and Jean Grey and Angel. Well, they come later. Emma, did you do a body count for this movie? So I realized about halfway through that I had not, but luckily there is the internet. And so I looked it up. I cheated this time. Someone else has already done this work. Somebody else has already done this work. So what are we doing that's here? That's shocking to me. Much like I did not go and trace down the primary sources on the Cuban Missile Crisis or read like <laughs> Bob Woodward's exposition on it. Uh, Emmett, in the words of early 2000s Trump, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was... 77 whoa on screen deaths with presumably like i mean i definitely saw a bunch of instances where people died like presumably died off screen where you're like oh you just saw that person get dropped but i think this is only bodies that tops the bejesus out of even x-men origins wolverine yeah it's the most heavy metal movie it is the most heavy metal movie and like people die in horrible ways in this movie let me just let me just run you through a list of of some of the like most gruesome we have magneto's mom shot in the head in the background of a of a shot right before his very right before his very eyes we have a tooth pulled out of a guy's head which even though it doesn't kill him i feels like that kind of torture porn should go on this list we have the three guys in the bar who just who who, who just get they had obliterated? They had it coming, oh, yeah. but they just get obliterated. And that, that dude has that so knife in his arm for such a long that time. That seems like an opening credits. This is Magneto now. Yeah, oh, damn it. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize how much I cursed until this. It's like I'm thinking about it. It's all you five year olds out there. Yeah, all of our young listeners. Yeah, all of our young listeners have been offended. Um, who Emmett is speaking to with Emmett's moral corner, where we count the violent acts. Each yeah. Week. So and and like Shaw with the the Nazi dime through his head, 
I mean, that's gruesome. Yeah. That is a gruesome There's the death. guys um, that get torn up in the barbed wire, too. Oh, yeah. There's the guy who's their friend, their nice George Lucas friend, who gets dropped from, like, oh. 60 stories and just splats right in front of them. Yeah, that and was brutal. That guy was cool. Darwin, who just dies needlessly by being turned to ash and has one last look with his lover, Havoc. And it's just truly tragic. Um, yeah, the Darwin thing seems incongruously mean for this movie. Yeah. Like, it feels weird. It feels weird because it comes from Shaw who says that he doesn't kill mutants. Mm-hmm. He has been attacked by Darwin. Mm-hmm. But he, he, it's not like the only choice he had in that moment was to kill him. Right. It also feels like kind of racially charged. Yes. Because the moment before he has made like a speech where he says, you don't want to be enslaved by the humans. And he looks at Darwin. Yeah. And they capture that. And Darwin isn't the only character of color in this, but it feels like particular in that moment. Yeah. It felt that way too, because um, I don't know what her name is. What's Zoe's? Angel. Angel. Zoe Kravitz. Leaves and looks right at Darwin and kind of says like, we're not welcome here. And it feels very much like racially charged because for some reason, the way they talked and looked at each other. But I mean, she could just mean we're not welcome here. Like as mutants, she could have just meant in general, like all of them. I think, I think his code is, and it's like, obviously he didn't need to kill him, but I think his code is that he would, he sees mutants as himself. Like mutants are, uh, protected under his like vision. But if you go against him inside with the revolution, he'll kill you. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he like, they try to put one over on him and he's like, I'm more powerful than you are. The whole civil rights issue was certainly a part of the 60s, which this movie is like diving into the 60s. But But it seems a little like more gung-ho about digging into all the sexism and a little more gun-shy about dealing with any of the racial issues. Aren't we all? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Um, This movie does pass the Bechdel test, the second of these five movies, too, in uh, Angel and Mystique talking to each other. It does have, I think, more female characters than we have before. Obviously, we like to keep track of these things because it's like a fun little meter. I don't think that if a movie passes the Bechdel test, it's like, it's done it. It's a good movie. It's perfect gender parody. And I think that there can also be like great female characters who don't pass the Bechdel test. It's a little bit of a way to measure these things. What so, is the other movie that passes it? X2. Okay. Uh, because they send Storm and Jean Grey off on a mission together when they go and get Nightcrawler. Oh, okay. X-Men Origins Wolverine only has one female character, so it isn't even capable of coming close to passing it. There's a fun fact about Nightcrawler. Mystique... I believe, and Aziel, Aziel, mm. the angel. Uh, yeah, we don't, yeah, they don't yeah. interact much in this movie, uh-huh. but those two characters have a child and it is Nightcrawler. Yeah, I wondered if there was an allusion to that at the end of the movie where she like goes off with him. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. I like the effect on him with his teleportation. I think it looks a little bit cooler than Nightcrawler's. I like how he leaves like the little like fire mm-hmm. residue mm-hmm. behind after him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do like that little like wispiness of it. Like he yeah. disappears and then there's all that smoke. 
I think most of the effects look pretty good in this, both like the practical mystique and beast stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence did the same eight hours of makeup that Rebecca Romjan did. I thought it was like pointed that when we see Rebecca Romjan in this, she's not in this <laughs> stuff again. She didn't come back to do that. She came back just she's to... like, I'll be me. <laughs> yeah. We certainly see like a lot more of Jennifer Lawrence as mm. a human but she she isn't i for a lot of these scenes i was thinking like she has like these mid transformation where yeah. she like transforms in the mid scene and i was like wow she really did 8 hours of makeup like to do to that do. 30 seconds of the scene the the animation in her changing i really liked the little like mm. gl- glittery like cool. scale kind of thing her body does i think most of the cgi looks pretty good too which is the first time in the series yeah there's like some stuff that looks a little suspicious a lot of the ships, I think. Yeah, when they're crashing on the beach, if you watch the trees and the and the the sand line, you see all of this like like you can just tell it's built on a computer. Yeah. You know, you're like, "Oh, that's mm. not real." But it doesn't take away. It's like my second time seeing it, like or probably like fifth time seeing it or whatever. But like you start to look at different things, but you don't really notice it right off the bat. It doesn't like detract from that scene. Yeah, I think it's better. It seems like they used it more sparingly than they do in the other movies, for sure. Uh, I also do think the submarine coming out of the water looks really good. I feel like they saved a lot of the budget for that because it does look so good. This movie is also kind of... So like we said, it was like well-liked when it came out. But I feel like the modern logline on this movie is that it's like the high watermark of the series. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. So I feel like just kind of like the opinion of like the last year or two is that a lot of film critics and uh, just movie watchers have been like, oh, like the best one is first class, which was not its reputation when it came out. What do you guys think makes this like stand out so much from the rest of the series? I feel like it really does that comic book thing. It really is as serious and as dark as the X-Men comics are while also being as bright and as like fast paced and just friggin ridiculous as Mm. they are too at the same time and like hits the balance in a way that i don't think any of the other movies have hit the balance quite correctly and this one does i would agree with that for real just like tonally hits the hit it hits it right yeah because even the parts where i you know you think that doesn't seem it feels like it's in almost a little bit of a different movie Mm -hmm. like it's a kind of a little bit comic or it, it rides the line of you don't really want to watch a pure tragedy or a pure comedy. You mm-hmm. kind of want to watch the like both of those things being put in equally. Yeah, I feel like I also really feel a director's vision from this movie mm. that I don't from a lot of the others. It feels like it's very confidently directed and that the director had something to say. And it just feels like you're in much more capable hands than the other movies, some of which feel like they were like made by a computer. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I would be interested in hearing, like, there are all these troubled production stories from the last movies of, like, Mm -hmm. the Fox executives getting in the way. I wonder if it's because of that Matthew Vaughn thing he said where, like, people just didn't really care about X-Men. That maybe they just let him do his thing and he had, like, more creative control than some of the other directors were given. Hmm. Or maybe he fought for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Maybe he stood up for himself. Maybe he came in with a hit under his belt and said, I know how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I also think that like lead dynamic relationship is so compelling and is like always heartbreaking and titillating when you come back to it every time watching this movie. Do we, What kind of love story do you guys think it is? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. About what Charles do you think it is? 
are you leaning towards like true friendship or like true brotherhood or more like, you know, homoerotica? This is definitely the most explicitly homoerotic yeah. of all the X-Men movies we've seen <laughs> yeah. so far. Yeah, I think I mean, I think they are I think they are in love. I don't I don't know. Like, I don't know how you I don't think I don't think they're in. I don't think I got that necessarily. I think I can see it. I could see how you with would would grasp that as your story Mm -hmm. right but like a part of me feels like the reason it feels that way is because um charles is a true empath so Mm. he has literally been through he's the only person who's been through the things magneto's been through Hmm. he's the only person who knows that stuff about him like the way almost like a cherished relative would know certain things about your life so for for that i think he feel you feel that love so completely because he truly knows what's going on in his head and he Hmm. feels such deep sympathy and like sorrow for him and that is what like love is right you want to put someone before yourself i think he really truly loves him and Mm -hmm. wants him to be okay but i don't know if that like extends into a romantic tryst Mm. yeah i don't know how much i necessarily think they're like have physical desire for each other there are certainly comments yeah right there's some a few uh leg pats he says like you make a beautiful lab rat but i know a lab rat there there are things like that but i think they just have such like a simmering burning energy for when he tells him he thinks he would be so beautiful when he reaches his full potential or whatever you know like yeah Yeah. God. Yeah, just the scene of them like up in the middle of the night playing chess, mm-hmm. wearing black turtlenecks. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're best friends. I think they love being with each other. I think they're like it's like the way you'd want to like just spend all your time with that person that you like, like you guys. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. you love that person. But oh. uh, yeah, I think they do have genuine love for each other. That's why that stuff at the end is so heartbreaking. Yeah, really like, hard. and they both play it so well. But when he turns against him, mm. and then when he's responsible for the shot, and like how angry. Fazbender is about everything. Like the very last line with McAvoy where he does like the I can't feel my legs. Like I think that line reading is so good. What is it like he goes through the loss of his father, his mother, Eric? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And then And then his best friend. And his best friend. And even kind of like the messed up father figure. Yeah. Who yeah. kills. He has that whole thing where he's like, you are my creator. And then he kills him. Damn. Yeah, because he had the ability to kill him when he was a kid. And he never did. Yeah. Yeah. And haunting him. Damn. Okay, I think uh, maybe the last segment we have is where we pick our MVP OTWs, <laughs> which is our most valuable players other than Wolverine. <laughs> Um, so I'll start with our guest, Anna, who was your favorite character in this other than Wolverine? Mm, I think it has to be James McAvoy mm. without a doubt. Gosh, he's such a dreamboat. <laughs> I love him. No, I don't know. I guess I, I think it's like really pulled between him and Michael Fassbender. What do you think of it? I'm going to give it to Banshee. Oh, okay, okay. Dang. I'm gonna say he's pretty good. He is so good in this. I've forgotten how much this movie like focuses on his powers. He's one of the cool X Men who we've never seen before, 
and whose powers are like actually used in this movie in some sort of productive way like he finds the sub for them it's just really exciting and in the spirit of not choosing like one of the protagonists like i definitely think that like the most enjoyable thing to watch in this movie is the michael fassbender james mcavoy relationship but in the spirit of not choosing one of the protagonists i would go definitely go with banshee is like the most exciting side he's, character. he's also like what happens when it goes right right yeah. like he's what he's charles's dream for the school yeah mm. and that actor is just giving a killer performance as him i think i would go rose Byrne as oh. moira I think she's really good in this. He likes the Bond girl. <laughs> I, I think that that opening scene where she's in the Hellfire Club is like such a bold introduction to that character. I also think she plays it really well. Mm. Like she has kind of fully formed movie star charisma in a way that not all of the young actors in this do. Like I think a lot of them, even like Lawrence is like figuring out how to be on screen still. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I hate that she's, is like in the first 30 minutes Shafted. and then in the last five <laughs> minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then she has that like ridiculous scene um, where she uh, gets horny on Maine at the meeting for her kiss with James McAvoy. Wow. I think, I think I'm going to change my answer. I think that the, the MVP, the like best, cause they said that Stan Lee was going to like make a cameo, but he was too far away and couldn't. I feel like the mystique cameo, is really oh. on par for me. I love that kind of stuff. Mm. I love the like reference to the next thing that mm. kind of ties the movies together almost like the Wolverine sit in like those kinds of things all will create this like unanimous like collection of movies that feel like they fit in the same world. So yeah. I like I love those kind of little things they are like fun little Easter eggs. Yeah, I do too. And I'm glad that this movie didn't go too much further. I'm glad that there's no like Patrick Stewart narrating this as an older, yeah, like yeah. looking back. Like I think that there's no framing device really grounds you in the immediate action of it. Um, okay, any last thoughts? Emmett, any last thoughts on X-Men First Class? I would just like to say in terms of other people who are stars in this movie, mm-hmm. Ray Wise is in this movie very, very briefly. Ray Wise is an excellent actor from the TV show Twin Peaks and also from the TV show um, Reaper, in which he plays the devil himself. And he just uh, kills it every time he's on screen. And I think he's playing some general, or he's the one, he's the general who's like, if they cross that line, we're going to blow them all to hell or uh, something. He's the American you know, general? Yeah, he's the American general. But he's not the American general on the boat. He's the American general like in the situation. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, and he, but he's just like really good in that role, even though it's tiny. He's memorable. Hana, any final thoughts? No. About this movie? I don't think so. I mean, I think that the, the funniest thing, I like literally what I told you is the first thing I wrote down was Magneto origin story. And that's what I like. One of the last things I wrote down was a really like truly a Magneto origin story from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would also give a shout out to Mr. Hurricane. I don't know mm-hmm. what his X-Men name is or who the actor is, but I thought he was really good. Yeah. And to the Groutfits. I love oh, the, the Groutfits in the training montage Yeah, when they're all, and Havoc's got the sleeveless one mm-hmm. to show he has attitude. They yeah. all have different little flares, <laughs> but they've got that like early matching. Also, there's LOL to a, to a line that Mystique has where she says, we've accomplished so much in the past week 
Which is just to remind you that this movie is on a 13-day time frame, and the entirety of their training takes place in a week. They really do a lot with a little. I know that we've come at this movie from a lot of different angles, but I feel like, at least for me, it's important to emphasize that it works Mm, in a way that most of these movies don't that we've seen so far. Like, it just pulls it off somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tragic. It really is. Like, I think not to end on a super sad note, but I feel like (laughs) truly it's like such a heartbreaking story of this character, just like Magneto, unable to look back. He can only move forward. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he's just standing in front of an absolute deluge of grief. And he is unwilling to let himself feel that. And he has to like walk away from his friend at the end of this movie because he like cannot look back. He cannot. Well, hopefully we are not staring down an absolute deluge of grief <laughs> with eight more of these movies to watch. Uh, Anna, thanks so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, this is so fun. Anything you want to plug? Anywhere that people can find you? Any projects? Anything you want to say while you're here? Um, well, you guys can go to at Brand Muffin with three N's. <laughs> Brand Muffin uh, on Instagram and look at my dope drawings that I've been making over the quarantine. Hell yeah. All right. Mm. We will be back next week where Wolverine is turning Japanese. I think he's turning Japanese. I really think so. Talking about 2013's The Wolverine. <laughs> wow. It's super exciting. Okay. Love you guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.